Hello, this is Brian Cam, and you are listening to Clear Story, an audio experiment in which I read various texts that I'm interested in. This time I'm going to do something which I haven't tried before, but this is an audio experiment, so I'm interested to see how it goes. And that is that I'm going to read a lecture in its entirety Thomas Kuhn gave on the question of objectivity in 1973. Kuhn wrote a book, which I've referred to before, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, in which he argues that science is not as orderly as it may appear. It's not a gradual succession of discoveries that are added on top of one another in a fairly logical, coherent, orderly way to provide an ever closer approximation of truth. Instead, it's a discontinuous series of revolutions, but the reason that it can appear to be linear, gradual, or orderly is that after each revolution, history is rewritten to make it look like it made sense and it wasn't just as chaotic as the process of discovery actually is. And moreover, that the new discoveries are somehow continuous with the old ones. So he writes this whole book on the process of scientific progress, but throughout it he deliberately avoids using the term truth. And at the end of the book, he points out this fact in a kind of brilliant rhetorical move where he says, you'll notice that although we've been talking about science this whole time, I have never used the word truth, except in one quote from Francis Bacon. You may be aware that I spent quite some time last year, from September to November of 2020, tweeting about Thomas Kuhn and about this book in particular. That thread reached 500 tweets or more, and it's a pretty comprehensive look at everything Kuhn argues in the structure of scientific revolutions. Now, even if you've read that thread, which I doubt you will have, because I don't think very many people have finished it, and if I'm wrong about that, I would love to hear from you what you thought of the thread if you did actually finish it. But even if you've read it, this is new material, which is the lecture that he gives a little over a decade after the first publication. He says it's 15 years, but I can't quite see how that adds up. It seems more like 11 years to me, but... Maybe it feels like it's been forever for him because it kind of ends up affecting the rest of his life. So what is this lecture and why is it important? Well, first I should be clear that I have not yet read this lecture. But the issue that it addresses is the question of relativism. And this is that if Kuhn does not believe that there is some kind of ground truth that science is getting ever closer to and science seems to make these metaphysical vacillations, kind of at one point operating with this worldview, at another operating with another, and yet it still produces progress, then it sort of seems like he's implying that there is no truth, or that everything is kind of the same, or that consensus is all that matters. And so he definitely does think that scientific consensus and authority plays a major role in how science is structured and how it proceeds. But he always hated the accusation that he was a relativist. So this is the 
lecture where he comes out and addresses those issues. And I'm going to read it. And I will post a link to the PDF, which is available online in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. The footnote says that this is from Thomas Kuhn's The Essential Tension, Selected Studies in Scientific Tradition and Change, which was published in 1977. The lecture was originally delivered as the Machette Lecture at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina on the 30th of November, 1973. And I think I just answered my own question because he appears to have written it down in 1977, which is actually 15 years after the structure. So this is Objectivity, Value Judgment, and Theory Choice by Thomas S. Kuhn. In the penultimate chapter of a controversial book first published 15 years ago, I considered the ways scientists are brought to abandon one time-honored theory or paradigm in favor of another. Such decision problems, I wrote, cannot be resolved by proof. To discuss their mechanism is, therefore, to talk about techniques of persuasion or about argument and counter-argument in a situation in which there can be no proof. Under these circumstances, I continued, lifelong resistance to a new theory is not a violation of scientific standards, though the historian can always find men, priestly, for instance, who were unreasonable to resist for as long as they did, he will not find a point at which resistance becomes illogical or unscientific. Statements of that sort obviously raise the question of why, in the absence of binding criteria for scientific choice, both the number of unsolved scientific problems and the precision of individual problem solutions should increase so markedly with the passage of time. Confronting that issue, I sketched in my closing chapter a number of characteristics that scientists share by virtue of the training which licenses their membership in one or another community of specialists. In the absence of criteria able to dictate the choice of each individual, I argued, we do well to trust the collective judgment of scientists trained in this way. What better criterion could there be, I asked rhetorically, than the decision of the scientific group? A number of philosophers have greeted remarks like these in a way that continues to surprise me. My views, it is said, make of theory choice a matter for mob psychology. Kuhn believes, I am told, that the decision of a scientific group to adopt a new paradigm cannot be based on good reasons of any kind, factual or otherwise. The debates surrounding such choices must, my critics claim, be for me mere persuasive displays without deliberative substance. Reports of this sort manifest total misunderstanding, and I have occasionally said as much in papers directed primarily to other ends. But those passing protestations have had negligible effect, and the misunderstandings continue to be important. I conclude that it is past time for me to describe, at greater length and with greater precision, what has been on my mind when I have uttered statements like the ones with which I just began. If I have been reluctant to do so in the past, that is largely because I have preferred to devote attention to areas in which my views diverge more sharply from those currently received than they do with respect to theory choice. What, I asked to begin with, are the characteristics of a good scientific theory? Among a number of quite usual answers, I select five, not because they are exhaustive, 
but because they are individually important and collectively sufficiently varied to indicate what is at stake. First, a theory should be accurate within its domain. That is, consequences deducible from a theory should be in demonstrated agreement with the results of existing experiments and observations. Second, a theory should be consistent not only internally or with itself, but also with other currently accepted theories applicable to related aspects of nature. Third, it should have broad scope. In particular, a theory's consequences should extend far beyond the particular observations, laws, or sub-theories it was initially designed to explain. Fourth, and closely related, it should be simple, bringing order to phenomena that in its absence would be individually isolated and, as a set, confused. Fifth, a somewhat less standard item, but one of special importance to actual scientific decisions, a theory should be fruitful of new research findings. It should, that is, disclose new phenomena or previously unnoted relationships among those already known. These five characteristics, accuracy, consistency, scope, simplicity, and fruitfulness, are all standard criteria for evaluating the adequacy of a theory. If they had not been, I would have devoted far more space to them in my book, for I agree entirely with the traditional view that they play a vital role when scientists must choose between an established theory and an upstart competitor. Together with others of much the same sort, they provide the shared basis for theory choice. Nevertheless, two sorts of difficulties are regularly encountered by the men who must use these criteria in choosing, say, between Ptolemy's astronomical theory and Copernicus's, between the oxygen and phlogiston theories of combustion, or between Newtonian mechanics and the quantum theory. Individually, the criteria are imprecise. Individuals may legitimately differ about their application to concrete cases. In addition, when deployed together, they repeatedly prove to conflict with one another. Accuracy may, for example, dictate the choice of one theory, scope the choice of its competitor. Since these difficulties, especially the first, are relatively familiar, I shall devote little time to their elaboration. Though my argument does demand that I illustrate them briefly, my views will begin to depart from those long current only after I have done so. Begin with accuracy, which for present purposes I take to include not only quantitative agreement, but qualitative as well. Ultimately, it proves the most nearly decisive of all the criteria, partly because it is less equivocal than the others, but especially because predictive and explanatory powers, which depend on it, are characteristics that scientists are particularly unwilling to give up. Unfortunately, however, theories cannot always be discriminated in terms of accuracy. Copernicus's system, for example, was not more accurate than Ptolemy's until drastically revised by Kepler more than 60 years after Copernicus's death. If Kepler or someone else had not found other reasons to choose heliocentric astronomy, those improvements in accuracy would never have been made, and Copernicus's work might have been forgotten. More typically, of course, accuracy does permit discriminations, but not the sort that lead regularly to unequivocal choice. The oxygen theory, for example, was universally acknowledged to account for observed weight relations in chemical reactions, something the phlogiston theory had previously scarcely attempted to do. But the phlogiston theory, unlike its rival, could account for the metals being much more alike than the ores from which they were formed. One theory thus matched experience better in one area, the other in another. To choose between them on the basis of accuracy, a scientist would need to decide the area in which accuracy was more significant. 
About that matter, chemists could and did differ without violating any of the criteria outlined above or any others yet to be suggested. However important it may be, therefore, accuracy by itself is seldom or never a sufficient criterion for theory choice. Other criteria must function as well, but they do not eliminate problems. To illustrate, I select just two, consistency and simplicity, asking how they function in the choice between the heliocentric and geocentric systems. As astronomical theories, both Ptolemy's and Copernicus's were internally consistent, but their relation to related theories in other fields was very different. The stationary central Earth was an essential ingredient of received physical theory, a tight-knit body of doctrine which explained, among other things, how stones fall, how water pumps function, and why the clouds move slowly across the skies. Heliocentric astronomy, which required the Earth's motion, was inconsistent with the existing scientific explanation of these and other terrestrial phenomena. The consistency criterion by itself, therefore, spoke unequivocally for the geocentric tradition. Simplicity, however, favored Copernicus, but only when evaluated in a quite special way. If on the one hand, the two systems were compared in terms of the actual computational labor required to predict the position of a planet at a particular time, then they proved substantially equivalent. Such computations were what astronomers did, and Copernicus's system offered them no labor-saving techniques. In that sense, it was not simpler than Ptolemy's. If, on the other hand, one asked about the amount of mathematical apparatus required to explain not the detailed quantitative motions of the planets, but merely their gross qualitative features, limited elongation, retrograde motion, and the like, then, as every schoolchild knows, Copernicus required only one circle per planet, Ptolemy two. In that sense, the Copernican theory was the simpler, a fact vitally important to the choices made by both Kepler and Galileo, and thus essential to the ultimate triumph of Copernicanism. But that sense of simplicity was not the only one available, nor even the one most natural to professional astronomers, men whose task was the actual computation of planetary position. Because time is short and I have multiplied examples elsewhere, I shall here simply assert that these difficulties in applying standard criteria of choice are typical and that they arise no less forcefully in 20th century situations than in the earlier and better known examples I have just sketched. When scientists must choose between competing theories, two men fully committed to the same list of criteria for choice may nevertheless reach different conclusions. Perhaps they interpret simplicity differently or have different convictions about the range of fields within which the consistency criterion must be met. Or perhaps they agree about these matters but differ about the relative weights to be accorded to these or to other criteria when several are deployed together. With respect to divergences of this sort, no set of choice criteria yet proposed is of any use. One can explain, as the historian characteristically does, why particular men made particular choices at particular times. But for that purpose, one must go beyond the list of shared criteria to characteristics of the individuals who make the choice. One must, that is, deal with characteristics which vary from one scientist to another, without thereby in the least jeopardizing their adherence to the canons that make science scientific. Though such canons do exist and should be discoverable, doubtless the criteria of choice with which I began are among them, 
they are not by themselves sufficient to determine the decisions of individual scientists. For that purpose, the shared canons must be fleshed out in ways that differ from one individual to another. Some of the differences I have in mind result from the individual's previous experience as a scientist. In what part of the field was he at work when confronted by the need to choose? How long had he worked there? How successful had he been? And how much of his work depended on concepts and techniques challenged by the new theory? Other factors relevant to the choice lie outside the sciences. Kepler's early election of Copernicanism was due in part to his immersion in the Neoplatonic and Hermetic movements of his day. German Romanticism predisposed those it affected toward both recognition and acceptance of energy conservation. 19th century British social thought had a similar influence on the availability and acceptability of Darwin's concept of the struggle for existence. Still other significant differences are functions of personality. Some scientists place more premium than others on originality and are correspondingly more willing to take risks. Some scientists prefer comprehensive unified theories to precise and detailed problem solutions of apparently narrower scope. Differentiating factors like these are described by my critics as subjective and are contrasted with a shared or objective criteria from which I began. Though I shall later question that use of terms, let me for the moment accept it. My point is, then, that every individual choice between competing theories depends on a mixture of objective and subjective factors, or of shared and individual criteria. Since the latter have not ordinarily figured in the philosophy of science, my emphasis upon them has made my belief in the former hard for my critics to see. What I have said so far is primarily simply descriptive of what goes on in the sciences at times of theory choice. As description, furthermore, it has not been challenged by my critics, who reject, instead, my claim that these facts of scientific life have philosophic import. Taking up that issue, I shall begin to isolate some, though I think not vast, differences of opinion. Let me begin by asking how philosophers of science can for so long have neglected the subjective elements which they freely grant enter regularly into the actual theory choices made by individual scientists. Why have these elements seemed to them an index only of human weakness, not at all of the nature of scientific knowledge? One answer to that question is, of course, that few philosophers, if any, have claimed to possess either a complete or an entirely well-articulated list of criteria. For some time, therefore, they could reasonably expect that further research would eliminate residual imperfections and produce an algorithm able to dictate rational, unanimous choice. Pending that achievement, scientists would have no alternative but to supply subjectively what the best list of objective criteria still lacked. That some of them might still do so even with a perfected list at hand would then be an index only of the inevitable imperfection of human nature. That sort of answer may still prove to be correct, but I think no philosopher still expects that it will. The search for algorithmic decision procedures has continued for some time and produced both powerful and illuminating results. But those results all presuppose that individual criteria of choice can be unambiguously stated and also that, if more than one proves relevant, an appropriate weight function is at hand for their joint application. Unfortunately, where the choice at issue is between scientific theories, little progress has been made towards the first of these desiderata, 
and none toward the second. Most philosophers of science would, therefore, I think, now regard the sort of algorithm which has traditionally been sought as a not quite attainable ideal. I entirely agree, and shall henceforth take that much for granted. Even an ideal, however, if it is to remain credible, requires some demonstrated relevance to the situations in which it is supposed to apply. Claiming that such demonstration requires no recourse to subjective factors, my critics seem to appeal, implicitly or explicitly, to the well-known distinction between the contexts of discovery and of justification. They concede, that is, that the subjective factors I invoke play a significant role in the discovery or invention of new theories, but they also insist that that inevitably intuitive process lies outside of the bounds of philosophy of science and is irrelevant to the question of scientific objectivity. Objectivity enters science, they continue, through the processes by which theories are tested, justified, or judged. Those processes do not, or at least need not, involve subjective factors at all. They can be governed by a set of objective criteria shared by the entire group competent to judge. I have already argued that that position does not fit observations of scientific life and shall now assume that that much has been conceded. What is now at issue is a different point. Whether or not this invocation of the distinction between contexts of discovery and of justification provides even a plausible and useful idealization. I think it does not and can best make my point by suggesting first a likely source of its apparent cogency. I suspect that my critics have been misled by science pedagogy, or what I have elsewhere called textbook science. In science teaching, theories are presented together with exemplary applications, and those applications may be viewed as evidence. But that is not their primary pedagogic function. Science students are distressingly willing to receive the word from professors and texts. Doubtless some of them were part of the evidence at the time actual decisions were being made, but they represent only a fraction of the considerations relevant to the decision process. The context of pedagogy differs almost as much from the context of justification as it does from that of discovery. Full documentation of that point would require longer argument than is appropriate here, but two aspects of the way in which philosophers ordinarily demonstrate the relevance of choice criteria are worth noting. Like the science textbooks on which they are often modeled, books and articles on the philosophy of science refer again and again to the famous crucial experiments. Foucault's pendulum, which demonstrates the motion of the earth, Cavendish's demonstration of gravitational attraction, or Fizeau's measurement of the relative speed of sound in water and air. These experiments are paradigms of good reason for scientific choice. They illustrate the most effective of all the sorts of argument which could be available to a scientist uncertain of which two theories to follow. They are vehicles for the transmission of criteria of choice, but they also have another characteristic in common. By the time they were performed, no scientist still needed to be convinced of the validity of the theory their outcome is now used to demonstrate. Those decisions had long since been made on the basis of significantly more equivocal evidence. The exemplary crucial experiments to which philosophers again and again refer would have been historically relevant to theory choice only if they had yielded unexpected results. Their use as illustrations provides needed economy to science pedagogy, 
but they scarcely illuminate the character of the choices that scientists are called upon to make. Standard philosophical illustrations of scientific choice have another troublesome characteristic. The only arguments discussed are, as I have previously indicated, the ones favorable to the theory that, in fact, ultimately triumphed. Oxygen, we read, could explain weight relations. Phlogiston could not. But nothing is said about phlogiston theory's power or about the oxygen theory's limitations. Comparisons of Ptolemy's theory with Copernicus's proceed in the same way. Perhaps these examples should not be given, since they contrast a developed theory with one still in its infancy. But philosophers regularly use them nonetheless. If the only result of their doing so were to simplify the decision situation, one could not object. Even historians do not claim to deal with the full factual complexity of the situations they describe. But these simplifications emasculate by making choice totally unproblematic. They eliminate, that is, one essential element of the decision situations that scientists must resolve if their field is to move ahead. In those situations, there are always at least some good reasons for each possible choice. Considerations relevant to the context of discovery are then relevant to justification as well. Scientists who share the concerns and sensibilities of the individual who discovers a new theory are ipso facto likely to appear disproportionately frequently among that theory's first supporters. That is why it has been difficult to construct algorithms for theory choice, and also why such difficulties have seemed so thoroughly worth resolving. Choices that present problems are the ones philosophers of science need to understand. Philosophically interesting decision procedures must function where, in their absence, the decision might still be in doubt. That much I have said before, if only briefly. Recently, however, I've recognized another, subtler source for the apparent plausibility of my critic's position. To present it, I shall briefly describe a hypothetical dialogue with one of them. Both of us agree that each scientist chooses between competing theories by deploying some Bayesian algorithm which permits him to compute a value for p of t, e, that is, for the probability of a theory t on the evidence E, available both to him and to other members of the professional group at a particular period of time. Evidence, furthermore, we both interpret broadly to include such considerations as simplicity and fruitfulness. My critic asserts, however, that there is only one such value of P, that corresponding to objective choice, and he believes that all rational members of the group must arrive at it. I assert, on the other hand, for reasons previously given, that the factors he calls objective are insufficient to determine in full any algorithm at all. For the sake of discussion, I have conceded that each individual has an algorithm and that all their algorithms have much in common. Nevertheless, I continue to hold that the algorithms of individuals are all ultimately different by virtue of the subjective considerations with which each must complete the objective criteria before any computations can be done. If my hypothetical critic is liberal, he may now grant that these subjective differences do play a role in determining the hypothetical algorithm on which each individual relies during the early stages of the competition between rival theories. But he is also likely to claim, as evidence increases with the passage of time, the algorithms of different individuals converge to the algorithm of objective choice with which his presentation began. For him, 
the increasing unanimity of individual choices is evidence for their increasing objectivity and thus for the elimination of subjective elements from the decision process. So much for the dialogue which I have, of course, contrived to disclose the non sequitur underlying an apparently plausible position. What converges as the evidence changes over time need only be the values of P that individuals compute from their individual algorithms. Conceivably, those algorithms themselves also become more alike with time, but the ultimate unanimity of theory choice provides no evidence whatsoever that they do so. If subjective factors are required to account for the decisions that initially divide the profession, they may still be present later when the profession agrees. Though I shall not here argue the point, consideration of the occasions on which a scientific community divides suggests that they actually do so. My argument has so far been directed to two points. It first provided evidence that the choices scientists make between competing theories depend not only on shared criteria, those my critics call objective, but also on idiosyncratic factors dependent on individual biography and personality. The latter are, in my critics' vocabulary, subjective, and the second part of my argument has attempted to bar some likely ways of denying their philosophic import. Let me now shift to a more positive approach, returning briefly to the list of shared criteria, accuracy, simplicity, and the like, with which I began. The considerable effectiveness of such criteria does not, I now wish to suggest, depend on their being sufficiently articulated to dictate the choice of each individual who subscribes to them. Indeed, if they were articulated to that extent, a behavior mechanism fundamental to scientific advance would cease to function. What the tradition sees as eliminable imperfections in its rules of choice, I take to be, in part, responses to the essential nature of science. As so often, I begin with the obvious, Criteria that influence decisions without specifying what those decisions must be are familiar in many aspects of human life. Ordinarily, however, they are called not criteria or rules, but maxims, norms, or values. Consider maxims first. The individual who invokes them when choice is urgent usually finds them frustratingly vague and often also in conflict with one another. Contrast he who hesitates is lost with look before you leap, or compare many hands make light work with too many cooks spoil the broth. Individually, maxims dictate different choices, collectively none at all. Yet no one suggests that supplying children with contradictory tags like these is irrelevant to their education. Opposing maxims alter the nature of the decision to be made, highlight the essential issues it presents, and point to those remaining aspects of the decision for which each individual must take responsibility himself. Once invoked, maxims like these alter the nature of the decision process and can thus change its outcome. Values and norms provide even clearer examples of effective guidance in the presence of conflict and equivocation. Improving the quality of life is a value, and a car in every garage once followed from it is a norm. But quality of life has other aspects, and the old norm has become problematic. Or again, freedom of speech is a value, but so is preservation of life and property. In application, the two often conflict, so that judicial soul-searching, which still continues, has been required to prohibit such behaviors as inciting to riot, 
or shouting fire in a crowded theater. Difficulties like these are an appropriate source for frustration, but they rarely result in charges that values have no function or in calls for their abandonment. That response is barred to most of us by an acute consciousness that there are societies with other values and that these value differences result in other ways of life, other decisions about what may and what may not be done. I am suggesting, of course, that the criteria of choice with which I began function not as rules, which determine choice, but as values, which influence it. Two men deeply committed to the same values may nevertheless, in particular situations, make different choices, as in fact they do. But that difference in outcome ought not to suggest that the values scientists share are less than critically important either to their decisions or to the development of the enterprise in which they participate. Values like accuracy, consistency, and scope may prove ambiguous in application, both individually and collectively. They may, that is, be an insufficient basis for a shared algorithm of choice. But they do specify a great deal. What each scientist must consider in reaching a decision, what he may and may not consider relevant, and what he may be legitimately required to report as the basis for the choice he has made. Change the list, for example, by adding social utility as a criterion, and some particular choices will be different, more like those one expects from an engineer. Subtract accuracy of fit to nature from the list, and the enterprise that results may not resemble science at all, but perhaps philosophy instead. Different creative disciplines are characterized, among other things, by different sets of shared values. If philosophy and engineering lie too close to the sciences, think of literature or the plastic arts. Milton's failure to set paradise lost in a Copernican universe does not indicate that he agreed with Ptolemy, but that he had things other than science to do. Recognizing that criteria of choice can function as values when incomplete as rules has, I think, a number of striking advantages. First, as I have already argued at length, it accounts in detail for aspects of scientific behavior which the tradition has seen as anomalous or even irrational. More important, it allows the standard criteria to function fully in the earliest stages of theory choice, the period when they are most needed, but when, on the traditional view, they function badly or not at all. Copernicus was responding to them during the years required to convert heliocentric astronomy from a global conceptual scheme to mathematical machinery for predicting planetary position. Such predictions were what astronomers valued. In their absence, Copernicus would scarcely have been heard, something which had happened to the idea of a moving Earth before. That his own version convinced very few is less important than his acknowledgement of the basis on which judgments would have to be reached if heliocentrism were to survive. Though idiosyncrasy might be invoked to explain why Kepler and Galileo were early converts to Copernicus's system, the gaps filled by their efforts to perfect it were specified by shared values alone. That point has a corollary which may be more important still. Most newly suggested theories do not survive. Usually the difficulties that evoked them are accounted for by more traditional means. Even when this does not occur, much work, both theoretical and experimental, is ordinarily required before the new theory can display sufficient accuracy and scope to generate widespread conviction. In short, before the group accepts it, a new theory has been tested over time by the research of a number of men, some working within it 
others within its traditional rival. Such a mode of development, however, requires a decision process which permits rational men to disagree, and such disagreement would be barred by the shared algorithm which philosophers have generally sought. If it were at hand, all conforming scientists would make the same decision at the same time. With standards for acceptance set too low, they would move from one attractive global viewpoint to another, never giving traditional theory an opportunity to supply equivalent attractions. With standards set higher, no one satisfying the criterion of rationality would be inclined to try out the new theory, to articulate it in ways which showed its fruitfulness or displayed its accuracy and scope. I doubt that science would survive the change. What from one viewpoint may seem the looseness and imperfection of choice criteria conceived as rules may, when the same criteria are seen as values, appear an indispensable means of spreading the risk which the introduction or support of novelty always entails. Even those who have followed me this far will want to know how a value-based enterprise of the sort I've described can develop as a science does repeatedly producing powerful new techniques for prediction and control. To that question, unfortunately, I have no answer at all, but that is only another way of saying that I make no claim to have solved the problem of induction. If science did progress by virtue of some shared and binding algorithm of choice, I would be equally at a loss to explain its success. The lacuna is one I feel acutely, but its presence does not differentiate my position from the tradition. It is, after all, no accident that my list of the values guiding scientific choice is, as nearly as makes any difference, identical with the tradition's list of rules dictating choice. Given any concrete situation to which the philosopher's rules could be applied, my values would function like his rules, producing the same choice. Any justification of induction, any explanation of why the rules worked, would apply equally to my values. Now consider a situation in which choice by shared rules proves impossible, not because the rules are wrong, but because they are, as rules, intrinsically incomplete. Individuals must then still choose and be guided by the rules, now values, when they do so. For that purpose, however, each must first flesh out the rules, and each will do so in a somewhat different way, even though the decision dictated by the variously completed rules may prove unanimous. If I now assume, in addition, that the group is large enough so that individual differences distribute on some normal curve, then any argument that justifies the philosopher's choice by rule should be immediately adaptable to my choice by value. A group too small, or a distribution excessively skewed by external historical pressures, would, of course, prevent the argument's transfer. But those are just the circumstances under which scientific progress is itself problematic. The transfer is not then to be expected. I should be glad if these references to a normal distribution of individual differences and to the problem of induction make my position appear very close to more traditional views. With respect to theory choice, I have never thought my departures large and have been correspondingly startled by such charges as mob psychology quoted at the start. It is worth noting, however, that the positions are not quite identical, and for that purpose an analogy may be helpful. Many properties of liquids and gases can be accounted for on the kinetic theory by supposing that all molecules travel at the same speed. Among such properties are the regularities known as Boyle's and Charles's law. 
Other characteristics, most obviously evaporation, cannot be explained in so simple a way. To deal with them, one must assume that molecular speeds differ, that they are distributed at random, governed by the laws of chance. What I have been suggesting here is that theory choice, too, can be explained only in part by a theory which attributes the same properties to all the scientists who must do the choosing. Essential aspects of the process generally known as verification will be understood only by recourse to the features with respect to which men may differ while still remaining scientists. The tradition takes it for granted that such features are vital to the process of discovery, which it at once, and for that reason, rules out of philosophical bounds. That they may have significant functions also in the philosophically central problem of justifying theory choice is what philosophers of science have to date categorically denied. What remains to be said can be grouped in a somewhat miscellaneous epilogue. For the sake of clarity and to avoid writing a book, I have throughout this paper utilized some traditional concepts and locutions about the viability of which I have elsewhere expressed serious doubts. For those who know the work in which I have done so, I close by indicating three aspects of what I have said which would better represent my views if cast in other terms, simultaneously indicating the main directions in which such recasting should proceed. The areas I have in mind are value invariance, subjectivity, and partial communication. If my views of scientific development are novel, a matter about which there is legitimate room for doubt, it is in areas such as these, rather than theory choice, that my main departures from tradition should be sought. Throughout this paper, I have implicitly assumed that, whatever their initial source, the criteria or values deployed in theory choice are fixed once and for all, unaffected by their participation in transitions from one theory to another. Roughly speaking, but only very roughly, I take that to be the case. If the list of relevant values is kept short, I have mentioned five, not all independent, and if their specification is left vague, then such values as accuracy, scope, and fruitfulness are permanent attributes of science. But little knowledge of history is required to suggest that both the application of these values and, more obviously, the relative weights attached to them have varied markedly with time and also with the field of application. Furthermore, many of these variations in value have been associated with particular changes in scientific theory. Though the experience of scientists provides no philosophical justification for the values they deploy, such justification would solve the problem of induction. Those values are in part learned from that experience, and they evolve with it. The whole subject needs more study. Historians have usually taken scientific values, though not scientific methods, for granted, but a few remarks will illustrate the sort of variations I have in mind. Accuracy as a value has, with time, increasingly denoted quantitative or numerical agreement, sometimes at the expense of qualitative. Before early modern times, however, accuracy in that sense was a criterion only for astronomy, the science of the celestial region. Elsewhere it was neither expected nor sought. During the 17th century, however, the criterion of numerical agreement was extended to mechanics, during the late 18th and 19th centuries to chemistry, and such other subjects as electricity and heat, and in this century to many parts of biology. Or think of utility, an item of value not on my initial list. It too has figured significantly in scientific development, 
but far more strongly and steadily for chemists than for, say, mathematicians and physicists. Or consider scope. It is still an important scientific value, but important scientific advances have repeatedly been achieved at its expense, and the weight attributed to it at times of choice has diminished correspondingly. What may seem particularly troublesome about changes like these is, of course, that they ordinarily occur in the aftermath of a theory change. One of the objections to Lavoisier's new chemistry was the roadblocks with which it confronted the achievement of what had previously been one of chemistry's traditional goals, the explanation of qualities such as color and texture, as well as of their changes. With the acceptance of Lavoisier's theory, such explanations ceased for some time to be of value for chemists. The ability to explain qualitative variation was no longer a criterion relevant to the evaluation of chemical theory. Clearly, if such value changes had occurred as rapidly or been as complete as the theory changes to which they related, then theory choice would be value choice, and neither could provide justification for the other. But historically, value change is ordinarily a belated and largely unconscious concomitant of theory choice, and the former's magnitude is regularly smaller than the latter's. For the functions I have here ascribed to values, such relative stability provides a sufficient basis. The existence of a feedback loop through which theory change affects the values which led to that change does not make the decision process circular in any damaging sense. About a second respect in which my resort to tradition may be misleading, I must be far more tentative. It demands the skills of an ordinary language philosopher, which I do not possess. Still, no very acute ear for language is required to generate discomfort with the ways in which the terms objectivity, and more especially subjectivity, have functioned in this paper. Let me briefly suggest the respects in which I believe language has gone astray. Subjective is a term with several established uses. In one of these, it is opposed to objective, in another, to judgmental. When my critics describe the idiosyncratic features to which I appeal as subjective, they resort, erroneously I think, to the second of these senses. When they complain that I deprive science of objectivity, they conflate that second sense of subjective with the first. A standard application of the term subjective is to matters of taste, and my critics appear to suppose that that is what I have made of theory choice. But they are missing a distinction standard since Kant when they do so. Like sensation reports, which are also subjective in the sense now at issue, Matters of taste are undiscussable. Suppose that, leaving a movie theater with a friend after seeing a Western, I exclaim, how I liked that terrible potboiler. My friend, if he disliked the film, may tell me I have low tastes, a matter about which, in these circumstances, I would readily agree. But short of saying that I lied, he cannot disagree with my report that I liked the film, or try to persuade me that what I said about my reaction was wrong. What is discussable in my remark is not my characterization of my internal state, my exemplification of taste, but rather my judgment that the film was a potboiler. Should my friend disagree on that point, we may argue most of the night, each comparing the film with good or great ones we have seen, each revealing, implicitly or explicitly, something about how he judges cinematic merit, about his aesthetic. Though one of us may, before retiring, have persuaded the other, he need not have done so to demonstrate that our difference is one of judgment, not taste.
Evaluations or choices of theory have, I think, exactly this character. Not that scientists never say merely, I like such and such a theory, or I do not. After 1926, Einstein said little more than that about his opposition to quantum theory. But scientists may always be asked to explain their choices, to exhibit the basis for their judgments. Such judgments are eminently discussable, and the man who refuses to discuss his own cannot expect to be taken seriously. Though there are, very occasionally, leaders of scientific taste, their existence tends to prove the rule. Einstein was one of the few, and his increasing isolation from the scientific community in later life shows how very limited a role taste alone can play in theory choice. Bohr, unlike Einstein, did discuss the basis for his judgment, and he carried the day. If my critics introduce the term subjective in a sense that opposes it to judgmental, thus suggesting that I make theory choice undiscussable, a matter of taste, they have seriously mistaken my position. Turn now to the sense in which subjectivity is opposed to objectivity, and note first that it raises issues quite separate from those just discussed. Whether my taste is low or refined, my report that I liked the film is objective, unless I have lied. To my judgment that the film was a potboiler, however, the objective-subjective distinction does not apply at all, at least not obviously and directly. When my critics say I deprive theory choice of objectivity, they must, therefore, have recourse to some very different sense of subjective, presumably the one in which bias and personal likes or dislikes function instead of or in the face of the actual facts. But that sense of subjective does not fit the process I have been describing any better than the first. Where factors dependent on individual biography or personality must be introduced to make values applicable, no standards of factuality or actuality are being set aside. Conceivably, my discussion of theory choice indicates some limitations of objectivity, but not by isolating elements properly called subjective. Nor am I even quite content with the notion that what I have been displaying are limitations. Objectivity ought to be analyzable in terms of criteria like accuracy and consistency. If these criteria do not supply all the guidance that we have customarily expected of them, then it may be the meaning, rather than the limits of objectivity, that my argument shows. Turn, in conclusion, to a third respect, or set of respects, in which this paper needs to be recast. I have assumed throughout that the discussions surrounding theory choice are unproblematic, that the facts appealed to in such discussions are independent of theory, and that the discussion's outcome is appropriately called a choice. Elsewhere, I have challenged all three of these assumptions, arguing that communication between proponents of different theories is inevitably partial, that what each takes to be facts depends in part on the theory he espouses, and that an individual's transfer of allegiance from theory to theory is often better described as conversion than as choice. Though all these theses are problematic as well as controversial, my commitment to them is undiminished. I shall not now defend them, but must at least attempt to indicate how what I have said here can be adjusted to conform with these more central aspects of my view of scientific development. For that purpose, I resort to an analogy I have developed in other places. Proponents of different theories are, I have claimed, like native speakers of different languages. Communication between them goes on by translation, 
and it raises all translation's familiar difficulties. That analogy is, of course, incomplete, for the vocabulary of the two theories may be identical, and most words function in the same ways in both. But some words in the basic, as well as in the theoretical vocabularies of the two theories, words like star and planet, mixture and compound, or force and matter, do function differently. Those differences are unexpected and will be discovered and localized, if at all, only by repeated experience of communication breakdown. Without pursuing the matter further, I simply assert the existence of significant limits to what the proponents of different theories can communicate to one another. The same limits make it difficult, or more likely, impossible, for an individual to hold both theories in mind together and compare them point by point with each other and with nature. That sort of comparison is, however, the process on which the appropriateness of any word like choice depends. Nevertheless, despite the incompleteness of their communication, proponents of different theories can exhibit to each other, not always easily, the concrete technical results achievable by those who practice within each theory. Little or no translation is required to apply at least some value criteria to those results. Accuracy and fruitfulness are most immediately applicable, perhaps followed by scope. However incomprehensible the new theory may be to the proponents of tradition, the exhibit of impressive concrete results will persuade at least a few of them that they must discover how such results are achieved. For that purpose, they must learn to translate, perhaps by treating already published papers as a Rosetta Stone, or, often more effective, by visiting the innovator, talking with him, watching him and his students at work. Those exposures may not result in the adoption of the theory. Some advocates of the tradition may return home and attempt to adjust the old theory to produce equivalent results. But others, if the new theory is to survive, will find that at some point in the language learning process, they have ceased to translate and begun instead to speak the language like a native. No process quite like choice has occurred, but they are practicing the new theory nonetheless. Furthermore, the factors that have led them to risk the conversion they have undergone are just the ones this paper has underscored in discussing a somewhat different process, one which, following the philosophical tradition, it has labeled theory choice. Once again, that was Thomas Kuhn, Objectivity, Value Judgment, and Theory Choice. It's not an easy lecture. I am going to listen to it myself now that I've recorded it, but I hope you found it interesting. I will hopefully talk a little bit more about what he means in this lecture in a later episode. But until then, I'm Brian Cam. Please find me on Twitter. That's B-R-Y-A-N-K-A-M, Kilo Alpha Mike. And I hope to hear from you. It would be great to hear your thoughts on Kuhn. Until next time.
I thought of the book as directed to philosophers. And I think not a lot of them read it. I think it was picked up much more widely than that. It was no particular force for some time in philosophy, although the philosophers surely knew it. Uh, but I remember, I guess it was Peter Hempel's telling me that he had been to a meeting in, I think it was Israel, at which groups had gathered and said that book should be burned. Uh, and all this talk about irrationality. And well, irrationality in particular, irrationality and relativism, the thing that bothered me about the Chappelle Review was all of the talk about relativism. I didn't think it was, in, in, I thought, I saw why he said that, but I thought if he thought a little bit more seriously about what relativism was and what I was saying, he would not have said anything like that. If it was relativism, it was of a, it, it was of an interesting sort of relativism that needed to be thought out before the tag was applied. In practice, I would say it's not a relativistic book. Uh, and although I would have had trouble initially, I tried in the end of structure to say in what sense I thought progress uh, was there. I, I largely squeezed it out the answer to that, talked about the accumulation of puzzles. And I think, and I would now argue very strongly, that the Darwinian metaphor at the end of the book is right and should have been taken more seriously than it was, and nobody took it seriously. People passed it right by. It's a question of stopping to see us as getting closer to something, but see us instead as moving away from where we were. And that was, I mean, I was saying that was beyond anything I'd really quite grasped until the point at which I had to really wrestle with that problem and say something. But, it, but saying that was important to me, and it led uh, to things that have happened since, and I think it might have been picked up and recognized more. <laughs>